Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Watchdogs Bark. My name is Drew. I am your host, and I consider myself a watchdog. Here we are, episode 17, and I want to thank everyone who has been listening, and I encourage you to share this with your friends who are like-minded and who would definitely disagree with everything I'm saying, but you think that maybe they should hear what I'm saying? (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot of those out there. In this episode, I wanted to do something a little different. Um, I've been told by a couple people that my podcasts have been pretty dark as of late, so I wanted to kind of lighten it up a little bit. I was watching one of my favorite movies the other day, and that is the animated version of Robin Hood uh, by Disney. That was before they went woke and are trying to indoctrinate everyone and being uh, diversity inclusive and equity driven on all their programming now. You know, it's sad. You used to just be able to have a bunch of friends over or like if you're babysitting, sit the kids down in front of the TV and put on a good old-fashioned Disney animated film, and that was your babysitter, and that was your entertainment, and no one was in danger of being offended, no one was in danger of being indoctrinated, and uh, you didn't have to worry about your children feeling bad about their skin color or their gender or their sexuality. Uh, That's all changed now, and sadly, I actually have to say that I believe Disney is now bad for children. But let's journey back to when Disney was good, wholesome, fun family entertainment. And my favorite animated film that Disney did was Robin Hood. And I watched it again recently the other day and recognized a lot of the symbolism I probably missed a lot of when I was younger. And that is, everybody thinks that Robin Hood steals from the rich and gives to the poor. And that kind of is what Robin Hood does. He steals from the powerful and aristocratic, and but mostly he is stealing from the government the taxes that Prince John took from the poor and downtrodden. And especially those that were harboring or celebrating or glorifying Robin Hood and what he was doing. So remember, back in the beginning of the movie, when we start with... Sadly, yes, I really do have the entire movie memorized start to finish. So if you remember, uh, I used to also sing along with the minstrel all the time. Every town has its ups and downs. Sometimes ups outnumber the downs. Not in Nottingham. Okay, so the story goes, King Richard, the good and honest and fair king, leaves. Sherwood Forest and Nottingham to go on a journey. And while he's gone, the sniveling, sneaky, weak, pathetic Prince John decides that he's going to go after Robin Hood 
and heavily tax those who are trying to harbor him or help Robin Hood in any way. Then remember, even though everyone is extremely depressed and downtrodden, they really don't all rise up and fight until the sheriff of Nottingham takes the money from the donation box in the church. And that was the final straw when the government finally taxed the churches. That's when everybody rose up. And you remember, Prince John was very jealous of the popularity of Robin Hood. And when this song arose that made fun of Prince John, calling him the phony king of England, he got really mad and double the taxes, triple the taxes. Then everybody is basically taxed into abject poverty. So I wanted to think about this movie as it applies to some of our leaders today. Who would we consider Robin Hoods? Well, as far as presidents go, I would have to say Ronald Reagan for sure. Because Ronald Reagan said the nine most dangerous words in the English language are we're from the government and we're here to help. He also said the government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. So he was definitely very well aware of an overbearing and tyrannical government and the problems with that. I think even more recently, of course, was Donald Trump. He's an outsider and was committed to draining the swamp. And the swamp creatures weren't really happy about that. And I believe that's why he was attacked 24-7, because he represented the biggest threat to business as usual in the government. Not only that, but he recognized the globalist threat that was happening too. As far as the other characters, well, we already know Prince John is Joe Biden, uh, but he would also be considered sniveling, weak characters like Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell. And then on the Republican side, you've got uh, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. These are people who desperately want to be popular, desperately want everyone to love them, but they have such weak moral character that they can never match up to what those who have accomplished much in their life can. Also, in Prince John's court or Joe Biden's court, you've got uh, Bernie Sanders, you've got the squad, you've got other people just really pushing him really far left or for more government control and, of course, higher taxes. Then, if you remember at the end of the movie, when King Richard returns, I believe King Richard is we the people because we know that we are the bosses of our representatives. I know many of them think that they have a higher boss as the government is their boss, but that is not true. They answer to us. They answer to we the people. So when King Richard returns, I believe that symbolizes when power will finally be returned to we the people and away from all of these crazy uh, leftists that want government bigger control and globalist control and 
all the things that we know are happening around us today. And at the very end, when Robin Hood and Maid Marian are married, I believe that is a marriage between the government and private enterprise. In other words, capitalism. Ooh, deep, right? I don't know. What do you guys think? One thing I've always had, and my parents have accused me of my entire life, was having a very active imagination. This just might be an example of that. What do you guys think? Uh, basically, I just wanted you to understand that the, the story of Robin Hood, many people say it's robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. And that's actually not true. It's robbing from the government who took their taxes and giving the taxes back to the people. Anyway, all right. So speaking of literature, uh, have you heard about the woke police going after classic works after the authors have died? The latest example of this is Roald Dahl is having the woke police rewrite some of his classic works. Do you remember Roald Dahl wrote uh, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Fabulous Mr. Fox, Matilda, uh, the BFG, you know, all these things that have been made into some of the best movies and are some of the greatest children's classics uh, and reenacted on stage, all these things. And what's going on is they're going in to change, or they wanted to, I should say. They wanted to go in and change words to be less offensive. Like, for instance, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, changing enormously fat to just enormous. And, you know, remember the Oompa Loompas? Little men to little people. And... Black tractors changed to murderous, brutal-looking monsters. First of all, I, I didn't know that tractors were racist or had any kind of skin color. The imagery of the black tractors in The Fabulous Mr. Fox is they were almost in shadow, in uh, subversive, you know, if you read that. So this may seem like you know, a very small thing. But as a couple of people weighed in, uh, first of all, PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel uh, said, the problem with taking license to re-edit classic works is that there's no limiting principle. You start out wanting to replace a word here or a word there and end up inserting entirely new ideas, as has been the case in Dahl's work. Another author, Matthew Dennison, who actually wrote the biography, Roald Dahl, Teller of the Unexpected, said, If you soften or make bland some of the choices of language, then perhaps you undermine the badness of the so-called bad characters, which pulls the rug from under the plot. So I think it is perfectly possible that changes to Dahl's wording actually somehow shrink the impact of the stories, make the stories less powerful. I could not agree more. And I believe many, many others felt the same too, because so much pressure was brought to bear on the publisher that they have decided to publish the original Roald Dahl works under Penguin Publishing, and then the newly censored works of Roald Dahl under Puffin Publishing. 
I personally hope that Puffin doesn't sell a single copy or sells very, very few copies and that people flock to the stores and buy all of the Penguin Roald Dahl classic series out of stock. That's just me. Because again, we're almost going Orwellian with all of what we want to do with history, especially after the authors die. I mean, who's going to be next? Shakespeare? Chaucer? Are we going to go back and judge everyone in history by today's standards? You remember my uh, previous podcast, I said that's called presentism, where those that are offended by history want to go back and judge those people in the 15th and 16th century by today's standards. I actually heard someone say, if I lived back in the 15th century, I would have been against slavery. That's not true. You're using your beliefs and views and ideals that you've grown to accept in your life today and judging all characters in history by that, saying they should have known better. I'm reminded of the George Orwell book, 1984. There's a famous quote from that talking about this very subject. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Doesn't that like perfectly fit into what people are trying to do to historical figures today? And then listen to these chilling words, again from 1984. And when memory failed and written records were falsified, when that happened, the claim of the party to have improved the conditions of human life had got to be accepted because there did not exist and never again could exist any standard against which it could be tested. I literally could go on and on with uh, references from 1984 because right now what is happening is so eerily similar to that book. If you haven't read that book, go read it. If you read it when you were a kid, read it again. I promise you when you read it as an adult, you will be shocked by how accurate it was. And actually, I think George Orwell would think that maybe he didn't even go far enough compared to what they're trying to do today. One last really short quote. See if this sounds really, really interesting. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. No truer words could be spoken at this time, I believe. As a matter of fact, that leads me to my next subject. There are people that want to tear down the Emancipation Statue in Washington, D.C. They've already taken it down in Boston, the replica of it. Uh, This is the statue, uh, famous statue, where Abraham Lincoln is standing upright and a slave is uh, on one knee down below him, breaking free of the chains. And many people believe this is showing that Abraham Lincoln lorded over the slaves and thought himself above them. One lady who I listened to in a video explained it best. If you look at the statue closely, that slave is not bowing their head 
to Abraham Lincoln. That slave is raising their head, looking upward, getting ready to stand up on their own without the chains of slavery. And what people don't understand is this statue was paid for by former slaves. And when it was revealed, it was dedicated by Frederick Douglass in a way to honor Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves. This was a gift and a celebration of Abraham Lincoln after he was assassinated for freeing the slaves. That's basically why he was assassinated. And even Whoopi Goldberg on The View. Now, <laughs> now understand the panel of women on The View are not the sharpest knives in the drawer, shall we say? And I don't know how this show is still uh, out there and running strongly because they're so obviously biased and ignorant to the truth. So when Whoopi Goldberg said that this statue needed to be torn down too because it celebrated slavery. No, it doesn't, Whoopi. It doesn't at all. It celebrates the chains being broken from slavery. It celebrates Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the slaves. And once again, the statue was paid for by ex-slaves. It was dedicated by Frederick Douglass. It stands as a monument of slavery being ended in this country. This propensity to tear down all of our statues and reminders of our history. I'm sorry, I have to do one more quote from 1984, and this one is the most poignant of all of them. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. That is what is happening to our history. People wanting to rewrite it are going to doom future generations to repeat it. All right. Another thing I want to discuss with you is this administration and honestly many others' propensity to manage crises rather than try to solve them. For example, drugs. This administration is spending Lots of money on opening safe drug-using sites and sending drug-use paraphernalia for free to drug addicts. But they're not telling them to stop using drugs and creating centers for addiction control and health. So they're managing the crisis rather than trying to solve it. The same thing with the border. Can you tell me anyone in this administration that has talked about reducing illegal immigration? They don't talk about that. They talk about regulating and managing the increased illegal immigration that is happening. They're not talking about reducing it. They don't want to reduce it. They want it to keep growing because the left's hope is all the people they allow into our country illegally 
and give free health care to and give uh, Social Security to and all kinds of other benefits, they're hoping they're going to be future Democratic voters to say thank you for giving us all this free stuff. In medicine, I thoroughly believe with all of my heart there will never be a cure for cancer, ever, because the cancer management industry is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. The chemotherapy, the radiation, the drugs, different things like that to manage cancer is so profitable, I don't believe there will ever be a cure for cancer. And then the same thing for the war in Ukraine. We seem to be giving Ukraine and its soldiers just enough military weapons and support to manage the war. And in the meantime, the uh, military industrial complex keeps growing and military contractors keep getting fed billions of dollars to make more and more of these weapons. Now, I personally believe that Ukraine is one of the most corrupt countries in the entire world and has been for decades. And I believe that some of the money that we're sending to Ukraine is being misused and laundered for people in our government. But I feel for the people in Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, I believe that they deserve to have this war won and to end this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But as long as there is money to be made in the management of that war, that is all that's going to happen. And moving on to another big headline, did you hear that the Energy Department came up with the same conclusion as the FBI? And that is that the COVID virus came from the Wuhan lab in China. And of course, those now that believe that are trying to backpedal and say, no, no, we didn't, we didn't mean, uh, you know, it actually, can't, that was uh, one possibility, a very strong possibility, but that's just still one possibility. And of course, Anthony Fauci, whose bread is buttered by the pandemic and probably China for donating so much money to the Wuhan lab. Oh, and yes, uh, the National Institute of Health did give money to EcoHealth Alliance in New York City, and they gave money to the Wuhan lab, and that funded the development of the virus. Now, what's more believable? Okay, this Wuhan lab was famous for studying bat coronaviruses, and the lady that was the head of the program was called the Bat Lady because she was so famous for her knowledge and her work in bat coronaviruses. So this lab had also, in 2018 alone, received four different warnings about safety and lack of training and safety knowledge for a level four biohazard lab. So what's more believable, someone working in that lab that has received multiple violations for safety, working in a level four biohazard lab, working on bat coronaviruses, and there's a wet market about 400 yards down the street where some wor lab worker could have been infected and walked down to the wet market and then spread it from there, or 
that it somehow started 900 miles away in a cave full of bats. And one of those bats, the uh, virus uh, spread to a pangolin and then to another species and then to a human and then went worldwide. What's more believable? I tend to believe that this came from a security leak in the Wuhan lab of virology in China. Again, you may disagree with me, and if you do, don't hesitate to write Drew at thewatchdogsbark.com. Oh, and by the way, did you know that Anthony Fauci made $5 million during the pandemic? I wonder where he got that money from. Huh. It's really strange. I mean, he's paid more than any other bureaucrat in our government, $415,000 a year as the director of the National Institute of Infectious Diseases. But, okay, 415 times two, that's really 800,000. Maybe 900,000 if you're, you know, let's maybe throw in a couple of extra uh, little dollars here and there. That doesn't, Add up to $5 million, though. How did Anthony Fauci make $5 million during the pandemic? Especially when he got everything wrong. From the very beginning, saying we didn't have to wear masks, to we have to wear masks. Oh, if one mask works well, then two masks would work even better. And if you get the, the vaccine, you cannot get the virus. You cannot get COVID. Oh, and wait, uh, yeah, you can get COVID, but it's not going to be severe enough to get you hospitalized or die. Okay, some people that are getting the vaccine are dying and being hospitalized, but that's not the norm. It, it basically reduced the number of people that were going to be hospitalized or die during the pandemic. I, I, I don't understand how anybody gives this man any amount of credibility anymore especially with what he did during the AIDS virus, withholding crucial information when they had finally isolated the AIDS virus. Then he withheld that information until, I think it was like two weeks, until he got paid from Big Pharma. How many people do you think died in those two weeks? Probably a lot. And like I always want to do, I always want to end on a positive note. I'm trying not to do it like crazy like I normally do. I, I've had a couple friends say it's kind of disingenuous when you tell us all these dark, horrible things and then say, and like I always like to end on a positive note. Okay, so I was trying to be more subdued and like I always like to end on a positive note. <laughs> I want to read you a, another Medal of Honor citation. This one from Sergeant First Class Benny G. Atkins. I can't read the entire thing, so I'm going to read you excerpts from it and then the ending, which will literally leave your jaw on the ground. Okay, Sergeant First Class Benny G. Atkins distinguished himself by acts of gallantry at the risk of his life upon and beyond the call of duty while serving as an intelligence sergeant with Detachment A-102 5th Special Forces Group, 1st Special Forces, during combat operations against an enemy at Camp A. Shao, Public of Vietnam, from March 9th to 12th, 1966. So the camp was attacked by a large group of North Vietnamese and Viet Cong 
forces. He manned a mortar position, continually adjusting fire for the camp. When he saw that there were wounded in the middle of camp, he turned the mortar over to another soldier, went through mortar fire, grabbed the wounded, and dragged several comrades to safety. As the hostile fire subsided, Sergeant First Class Adkins exposed himself to sporadic sniper fire while carrying his wounded comrades to the camp dispensary. When Sergeant First Class Atkins and his group of defenders came under heavy small arms fire from the members of the civilian irregular defense group that had defected to fight with the North Vietnamese, he maneuvered outside the camp to evacuate a seriously wounded American and draw fire, all the while successfully covering the rescue. Then a resupply airplane dropped a bunch of supplies outside the camp. He went outside the perimeter and retrieved those much-needed supplies, again drawing fire while he was doing it. Then in the, early in the morning, on March 10, 1966, the enemy launched their main attack, and Sergeant First Class Atkins was the only man firing a mortar weapon. When all mortar rounds were expended, Sergeant First Class Atkins began placing effective recoilless rifle fire upon enemy positions. Despite receiving additional wounds from the enemy rounds exploding in his position, Sergeant First Class Atkins fought off intense waves of attacking Viet Cong. Sergeant First Class Atkins eliminated numerous insurgents with small arms fire while withdrawing to a communications bunker with several soldiers. Then they started running extremely low on ammunition. He returned to the mortar pit, gathered vital ammunition, and ran through intense fire back to the bunker. After being ordered to evacuate the camp, Sergeant First Class Atkins and a small group of soldiers destroyed all signal equipment and classified documents, dug their way out of the rear of the bunker, and fought their way out of the camp. While carrying a wounded soldier to the extraction point, he learned that the last helicopter had already departed. Sergeant First Class Atkins led the group while evading the enemy until they were rescued by helicopter on March 12, 1966. During the 38-hour battle and 48 hours of escape and evasion, fighting with mortars, machine guns, recoilless rifles, small arms, and hand grenades, it was estimated that Sergeant First Class Atkins had killed between 135 and 175 of the enemy while sustaining 18 different wounds to his own body. Sergeant First Class Atkins' extraordinary heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect greater credit upon himself. Detachment A-102, 5th Special Forces Group, First Special Forces, and the United States Army. I could not agree more. What is happening to our military now with being woke is breaking my heart because people like this will be few and far between in the future, I'm afraid. So my hat's off to Sergeant First Class Benny Atkins and his incredible heroism and well-deserving the Medal of Honor. And once again, we've come to the end of another podcast of The Watchdogs Bark. If you agreed or disagreed, write me, Drew at thewatchdogsbark.com. Until next time, create an amazing day.